0: Welcome to On the Casp, the podcast that tells you about the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I also lead Russia's Modern Deterrence Project, which studies such aggression and proposed solutions. Think interference with another country by means that are almost entirely legal. You can find On the Casp wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And to learn more about modern deterrence, visit rusiorg slash modern deterrence. And you can tweet me too. I'm Elizabeth Brawl. Many thanks to our partners at Willis Towers Watson for making this podcast possible. As we record this, there's major news in the UK. The Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee, the ISC, has just released its long-awaited report into Russian interference in the UK. If you haven't been paying attention for the past few years, The committee's findings are explosive. Russia is interfering with the UK through both legal and illegal means, the committee finds. And the former include oligarchs and their wives who have become UK citizens and donate large sums of money to both political parties and other institutions. And the question is, of course, what are they expecting in return? Another thing that everybody wanted to find out, in fact, the key thing everybody wanted to find out was whether Russia had meddled with the Brexit referendum. But the committee simply notes in its report that the UK government hasn't investigated the matter. So we may never find out whether Russia interfered with the Brexit referendum. And we're still dealing with a coronavirus crisis. Here's the thing, there will be many more crises and we as societies are simply not set up to cope with them. The armed forces know what to do with military crises, of course, and governments have contingency plans, but the missing piece is the public. Right now, in most Western countries, the public is not trained for contingencies in any way at all. To remedy this, earlier this year, I proposed voluntary resilience training for teenagers. And the best thing that could happen to a think tank then happen to me. My idea was picked up and improved on by a policymaker who can actually make things happen. In this case, the policymaker is Stuart Macdonald MP, the SNP's defence spokesman in the UK Parliament. Stuart, there are many reasons I was keen to have you on the show and I'm keen to talk to you today. Uh, There are a host of of, uh, defence issues, of course, uh, relating to anything from China to Russia to resilience to coronavirus, but I'm particularly keen to talk about your plans for resilience Scotland. and. Uh, i'm I'm very keen to discuss it because it's it relates uh, very closely to to the ideas I've put forward for resilience and how for, for for how to make the population resilient. So for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with your plan, uh, can you describe what it is you're proposing?
1: Yeah, certainly. and, and thanks for having me on the on the podcast, Elizabeth. Uh, I think what the pandemic has shown us, although I know you have been talking about these issues, since way before the pandemic uh, started but the pandemic exposed particularly in the early days of the coronavirus crisis when we were heading towards lockdown and in the early days of the lockdown just how unresilient our infrastructure to deal with an issue like a pandemic really is you know the there were several people uh, in parliament largely conservative politicians we thought that the military could just sort all this out and do what had to be done, when in reality, uh, the pandemic has really been handled by health workers, by drivers, uh, by volunteers, by local authority staff, uh, and many, many others up and down the country. So what I want to see happening a, in a Scottish context, and we do quite a bit on resilience already uh, within the confines of devolution, is our... Uh, much much broader thinking about resilience and its relationship with national security—they're not separate to each other, but they should be one and whole—is how I see it. Because where you have weak spots in how resilient your population is, and that can be anything from you know how do you deliver public services during a pandemic to how do you deliver public services during a uh, an attack on your electricity infrastructure or yeah. or whatever it might be—a shock weather event, for example those become exploitative, they become attack surfaces for adversaries, whether that be a state power or a terrorist organisation or whatever it might be. And ultimately, your population uh, suffers from that. So my idea is to, how do we pull all of that together uh, and create a body in Scotland? I mean, I've called it Resilient Scotland. I should say that's just something that came to my mind when I was describing it. It's very
0: touchy. It feels yes. like it's been around for a long time already.
1: <laughs> I hope so. You know, so how do how do we how do we um, h- yes, how do we pull together all the parts of the architecture of, of government, of private sector, of third sector uh, to ensure that we are as resilient as possible? The answer isn't always uh, the armed forces important a part, although they play and, and have played, of course, in the pandemic, but in actual fact our greatest asset is ordinary ordinary citizens
0: that's right and and in a crisis if they are not uh, trained and and educated before the crisis they turn into a burden for society whereas if they are trained and, and educated they will become an asset and and so I, from my perspective it's absolutely obvious why why the population needs to be trained and and coronavirus is not the last crisis we'll we'll experience as you as you said that will be Post-state attacks that could be on the grid, on on the internet, uh, infrastructure, or, or whatever strikes the fancy of our adversaries.
1: Yes, and, and I would give just one example that I noticed very early on, and this relates to disinformation. So if you remember, at the start of the crisis, there were all kinds of things flying around the internet. And in Scotland, we had one example of this saying that the army had set up a camp just outside of Glasgow because they, you know, at Glasgow, the streets were about to go into lockdown. And obviously this came on the back of, there, was, there were video images of the military on the streets in Paris, in Italy, where people had to have documents to leave the house at that point. But we, we were nowhere near that yet. And I remember this story about the army setting up a camp in, in Strathclyde Park, just outside of Glasgow, and the military were going into lockdown. And it, it was my partner, actually, lots of his friends were texting him asking my partner to ask me if this was true, if, if the military were about to close the city down and all the rest of it. The outcome of that was supermarkets were empty. People were panic buying. Mm-hmm. That left the elderly uh, and the vulnerable and key workers unable to get the kind of supplies that they needed, just basic, uh, you know, food supplies and other household supplies. And the curiously, I mean, I look back at it now and it seems quite funny, but it wasn't funny at the time, the images that were being shared, many of them were of army vehicles from different countries. You could tell by the fact they were driving on the other side of the road for a start. <laughs> um, you could also see one of them, I think, was actually the Spanish Red Cross from you know, whatever mission they were on somewhere. People were claiming that these were actually you know, being deployed in the United Kingdom to lock citizens into their homes. And the result of that kind of falling for that disinformation was obvious. So. You know, why is that a problem and how do you fix that? I mean, you and I, Elizabeth, have talked about disinformation quite a bit. But what we need is to build that resilience into people, how to consume news properly, how to work out where something isn't quite right, how do you verify a story. And in the context of a public health crisis, that's incredibly, incredibly important.
0: It is. And and by the way, if I may insert the health crisis, the public health crisis isn't over yet because when uh, the vaccine arrives, which we hope will be soon, that then, we, then we'll have the additional challenge of some people believing disinformation, misinformation about that and then refusing to get vaccinated. So it, it all hangs together. It, Stuart, can I just uh, maybe go back to your plan of what exactly it is you're proposing? Because I, I know um, you essentially picked up something that, that I had proposed, which was resilience training for te- teenagers, but then built on it, which is exactly what one as a, teen, as, a, as, a as a think tanker wants, because we, we think tankers don't implement anything. We just put forward ideas and hopefully practitioners then build on, which is exactly what you have done. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your plan for, uh, for what the training should look like?
1: Yeah, so what, what, what I want to, or what my idea is, that this would be a voluntary thing that anyone can join. Uh, it's not aimed at, at teenagers. It's not aimed at any particular group. It's aimed at those who are willing to help. And again, what, what we had at the start of the coronavirus crisis was a call from government for volunteers to help out with various things, and 80,000 people responded to that call in Scotland. So there's already a willingness there in the country amongst the population to be engaged and that's a good thing and there have been lots of you know voluntary groups and things across the country helping out to make sure things still tick over particularly for those who, who are most in need but it's uncoordinated and that in itself leaves gaps that perhaps government or public agencies aren't aren't filling so what I, I think we have to do is recognize and if you take the current crisis as an example recognize where are our weak spots you know so in my own city of glasgow we had over 30% of glasgow city council's workforce not able to work so that's a huge amount of services that need to be delivered not able to be delivered so if we can have a resilience program a resilience network that can be used in the time of a crisis any kind of crisis to step in where We need them to step in. What that also does is not just ensure that the services you need to provide to keep the country going get provided, but it frees up those who might otherwise be thought to be the ones who should step in. I go back to the point I made on the military. It's not really the military's job to ensure the continuation of food supplies, for example. It's not really the police's job to do that either, or the fire service's job. That frees them up to do the job that they have to do, and what it means is you can have people who will step in when it's required, when it's needed, who've been trained to make sure that you can still that the government's relationship with the population is strong and sound and can't be become a weakness that can be exploited. I think you can also look at how do you get that, how do you drill that right down into a into a community level, you know. So again, how do you, if you take the disinformation example. Uh, where you've got people who are thinking the military is about to lock down the streets, that becomes something that can be easily exploited. But if what you have is people who are trained in understanding information resilience, you could very easily create networks that get right into a local level to ensure that information that is put out there by the state, by the by the health authorities or whoever, is understood and is trusted. By ordinary citizens who perhaps don't give this kind of stuff much thought. And, and the challenge is a big one. I mean, I noticed if we take the disinformation example, a lot of people who I would have thought would have been smart to this stuff were really getting caught into a frenzy very, very early on. So I, I want to have a network of people who volunteer to understand resilience in as broad as possible sense, just as we should understand national security in its broadest possible sense as well.
0: And if I may add, that also, from my perspective, answers another challenge that we have in liberal democracies, which is that at the moment, nobody or very few people feel responsible for the common good um, because we've had so many years where we've been able to pursue our own happiness, which is obviously a good thing, but nobody feels responsible for, for the common good. And then when something happens, we are caught completely unprepared. And even though people would like to help, they, they don't know how to do it. And and we saw here in the UK, we saw it with, with the so-called NHS army, where lots and lots and lots of people signed up to volunteer, and then there weren't tasks enough for them. So then they were left having no outlets, well, they were given no tasks. So I, I think your proposal really answers that question too. So there is a, uh, there is a need for this, this sort of uh, knowledge and this sort of training, but it also has the additional advantage of, of hopefully bringing people closer together and, and give them a sense of, of common purpose in, in their local community and, and even beyond that.
1: Yeah, and I think we've seen some of that happen. As I say, there were lots of resilience networks sprung up all over the country, didn't they? Where you know people were going out to identify, you know, who's elderly, who needs help, who needs their their medicines picked up on a regular basis, and things like that. And all of that is great. Um, and I saw lots of it in my own constituency, and, and it's still going on. The other side to that, though, is that inevitably they don't catch everyone, and so inevitably you have people who lose out. Uh, And I I think if if we can design a system, you know, we we get 80,000 people who responded to our call to help out. Most of them never heard anything at all. As you say, they weren't given uh, tasks to do. But if we can design a resilient system that engages people, not just at a time of crisis, but throughout time continuously, where people can give their skills, learn new skills and build on the skills and look maybe this is something that shouldn't be voluntary, right? Maybe this is something actually that, that you employ people in. You know, you, 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 you actually pay people full time to work on, on resilience when it's needed. I think there's another crucial element to this that's important to state as well, because I noticed that, you know, I'm, I'm a social Democrat on the centre-left, and I noticed sometimes that our friends in the in the right or the centre-right are quite attracted to this kind of idea because they think it's a way of, of delivering public services on the cheap, if you like. And my point is that, I mean, that would be the wrong approach to take. I'm not suggesting that anyone who comes in, who steps in to support a national resilience effort, somehow replaces public sector workers in any kind of way at all. But you have people there who are trained and equipped and ready and trusted to step in with a national resilience or a local resilience effort when it's needed in a way that engages people, uh, in a way that people feel buy-in to it and and trust of it as a result of that.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting that your proposal comes at the same time as, uh, or actually just before, uh, the Defence Minister of Germany proposed a similar thing, which she did um, just a couple of days ago, and it's called your year for Germany, and you, uh, young people get to choose uh, whether they would like to do a year of military service or a year of, of uh, service in a civic role, so in, in, a, in a care home or, or uh, something of, of, of that kind. Now, that's that's a very different approach, but I think it still speaks to the same idea that we need something uh, a sort of a communal effort in our society. And 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 as you, as, as our listeners are no doubt aware, there is a a similar push in, in the U.S. Congress, a bipartisan push for uh, something similar um, that, that would give young people the opportunity to, do, to spend a year doing service to society. So this is very much a, a, a global, I shouldn't say global trend, but a trend uh, around the world because there is this external need for people to know better what to do in a crisis and for us members of, of, of liberal democracies to, to come together for society. Um, can I ask you, Stuart, uh, very quickly, have you, when you discuss these ideas with your constituents, what sort of reactions do you get?
1: You know, the, the the people who hated the idea were always destined to hate the idea and confuse it with national service because at the time I started talking about this, national service had kind of reared its head and I am an opponent of national service uh, completely. The I think the thing I would say is that, you know, some of the people who, who I think misunderstood it to be some kind of, you know, kind of militaristic project or whatever, when I talk about national security and certainly in the view that you take in the work that you do as well, Elizabeth, you know it's about understanding national security is not just a kind of Anglo-American way of looking at the world, but a more holistic European approach to it. It's about understanding that, you know, the fact that you perhaps can't feed a large part of your population during a, a crisis is a national security problem. It's about the f- identifying the fact that if you've got 20% of the population who won't take a vaccine that is a national security problem. So when I've talked about it to people, especially to those who've stepped up to the plate, they've just got involved with local uh, groups and their organisations to help out where perhaps uh, statutory bodies or or the emergency services and others aren't able to, they like the idea. People like the idea. It's a popular uh, idea. And we know that from the evidence. The evidence being 80,000 people in Scotland signed up to help out during the crisis and i think the key thing about doing this is getting it right you know this will cost money but it's value for money at the same time we have seen as a result of the pandemic what happens if you have i don't want to say poor planning but not enough planning and the means to execute the response to to a pandemic as well so again i just i go back to the point i perhaps made earlier there is no way to do this uh, on the cheap. It costs cash, but I think it's an investment. It's an investment in your population. It's an investment in, your, in strengthening your democracy, strengthening your institutions, strengthening public trust in your institutions. And as we know from looking at how different countries have handled the pandemic, where populations have, by and large, trust their national institutions, even if they don't always agree with them, But where they trust them, the response to the pandemic uh, has been much greater. Cases have gone down faster. Deaths uh, are lower. And where we know that there is deep public distrust, fractured societies, divisions that can be exploited, authorities have have found the pandemic much more difficult to deal with. The result being higher numbers of cases, more deaths, And the example I would use there would be the United States, I think, where not only is there deep division and deep distrust, but quite often it's not entirely clear who's responsible for what within a pandemic. And again, that becomes an opportunity that can be exploited.
0: Absolutely. And, and if we look at the countries that have, some of the countries that have done well, it's countries where the public has a high degree of trust in, in, in their authorities, for example, in Finland and, and New Zealand, which are otherwise not very similar as countries, but they do have that in common. Stuart, I can't let you go without asking you about the, the Russia report, the, the, the report that came out a few days ago, uh, detailing maybe not as much as some would have wished but nevertheless detailing the extent of russian interference in, in uk society and i think what's what's really interesting about that report is the the extent to which the the interference is is not even illegal it's it's done as in the open and, and the information is in the public domain and that makes it even more frightening i think uh, because it shows how vulnerable uh, a liberal democracy is but I wanted to ask you what, what you make of the report and, and more importantly, the lessons learned.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's going to be a lot in there and it, it comes, you know, we're expecting obviously the results of the government's integrated review uh, in the next few months. I think we're expecting in the autumn of this year. So it, the report itself certainly gives Parliament more to think about in the context of the review because we will need to now look at, you know, how does the Official Secrets Act work or not work properly in the modern day? Uh, do we need a foreign agents register similar to that in the US? I think the main takeaway for me, Elizabeth, is, is is really just how how asleep at the wheel the UK has been really since you know the, the late days of Thatcherism and the early days of John Major's government, whether we're talking about Russian money in the UK, largely through the City of London, some of that money finding its way into political parties, and whether we're talking about issues like disinformation, uh, meddling in, in democratic processes and events, we have been asleep at the wheel, uh, is the truth. And, and you know, I take no pleasure in that at all. I think the threat is serious and should be taken seriously. I think that it's OK, apart the report didn't perhaps have in it, as much as people would have liked. I would have liked to have seen more in there, uh, particularly around the Brexit referendum. I think it's astonishing uh, that the government, uh, you know, by the ISC's admission, did not look to see if there was any interference in the Brexit referendum. And the fact that the government have now said they see no need for a retrospective investigation, I think, is appalling. And ultimately, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a Scottish nationalist, I want Scotland to be independent, but I also want this to be done properly. And the UK is standing out uh, amongst other liberal democracies in Europe or member uh, institutions like NATO, where we're not taking this as seriously as we should. And I think there are lessons we can learn from the Baltic states, from Sweden, uh, lessons we can learn from countries like Australia and New Zealand, as far as other foreign meddling goes, uh, if not from Russia. And indeed, lessons we can learn from the United States. So, the days of uh, you know closing the eyes and closing the ears must now surely come to an end. You would have thought the Litvinenko poisoning would have caused that, but clearly it hasn't. That has to come to an end. The government has to take the threat of Russia seriously—not just the threat that Russia poses outside the United Kingdom, but the threat it poses inside of the United Kingdom as well.
0: And uh, it's worth pointing out that it's not just Russia, but other countries as well acting in a similar fashion. So even more reason to, to be uh, more alert to these uh, threats and, and in fact to train the population to be more aware. And uh, because resilience doesn't just involve resilience to physical events such as pandemics or or attacks on on the cyber attacks on the grid, but Uh, resilience to political meddling by other countries as well. So uh, Stuart, thank you very much. And um, we'll be watching Resilience Scotland with, with great interest because it's, not just because it's a catchy name, but because it's an incredibly important initiative. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: How can we train citizens to become more resilient in crises? Tweet me your thoughts or your suggestions. My Twitter handle again is Elizabeth Braun. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the Casp.